This is Channel 253. In this episode of Crossing Division. What is the harm that they are seeking to prevent? Is it the harm of um, car shenanigans, you know, burning donuts and things like that? Is it the harm of people gathering on the sidewalk? I have no idea. Is it the harm that a police officer may show up and do something that is of poor judgment later? Well, that seems to be an entirely different problem. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. Hi, it's Evelyn Lopez. We are back with part two of our harm reduction decisions and consequences. And with me again is the wonderful Shannon McMinnemy, who is my go-to person for all constitutional law questions. And we're gonna talk, yay, we're gonna talk today. As you will recall last, so let me give you a context that I gave last time. Why do we have rules and laws? So we do believe that we are a nation of laws. We do believe that having laws and consequences for bad behavior is important in a well-run society. But to recap from part one, sometimes our history, our culture, our pervasive discrimination and racism interferes with our ability to make good laws that are fair to everyone. Uh, Shannon talked you through de jure. I learned to say de jure, but Shannon was saying de jure and de facto discrimination last time, which is you can have a neutral law and then if it's only enforced against people who have a certain skin color, that is a discriminatory law, even though on its face it looks perfectly fine. All of this means we really have to be thoughtful about the laws that we enact. Do we really need to govern our interpersonal interactions as police issues all the time? We tend to do this. I think we tend to do this because it's an easy out. You've got a social problem, get your council together, pass a law, brush your hands together and say, glad we took care of that problem. But that's not how it's supposed to work. We need our elected officials to think through laws and rules and policies and consider very carefully the impact on all of the members of our community. This is one of the greatest responsibilities of our political leaders. And I often wonder if the problem is that they simply don't have the skills to make good decisions. So today, we're going to work through a detailed decision-making matrix that would let any elected official or anyone at all make better decisions about harm reduction. We're calling it part two, a framework for harm reducing decision-making. It has a couple of different parts. The parts are basically this. One, what is your need? What is your issue that you are trying to fix? You've often heard it said, what is the problem to which this is the solution? Two, What are the consequences of this law? What kind of enforcement is going to happen? Third, is there an opportunity to review? You've got an idea of something you need to happen. You think it's going to be a law. You've thought through the consequences. Will you build in some review so that you can follow up again and see what the consequences really were in the real world? And finally, the importance of informing and consulting with the public. So let's start. And Shannon, what I'm going to say is this, we want some examples that we can apply this framework to. So the first example, I'm not going to run through the whole system on, but I wanted to mention that Tacoma recently decided to repeal its bike helmet law. And that was a really good thing. Not because it's not a good idea to wear bike helmets. Oh no, it is a really good idea to wear bike helmets. But when you make it mandatory, when you make it a crime not to wear a bike helmet, what happens? Unintended consequences and who ends up being subject to fees and fines associated with not wearing bike helmets 
And is it discriminatorily applied based on uh, membership in protected class? And then also for the flip side inverse, are you discouraging people from using bikes as a method of transportation? Because that's one more thing that individuals have to go and purchase in order to be able to use bikes. Mm -hmm. So if we talk about, you know, with a bike helmet law, what is the harm to be prevented? I think what the city council had intended was this will make it more likely that people wear helmets and not get hurt if there's a bike accident. That's a good thing. But why would you make it into a criminal law? Exactly. And what is what is the exist what is the purpose of having this law against the greater good? And is it really resulting in change to behavior or is it creating inadvertent, undesired change to behavior, meaning less people riding bikes, less kids riding bikes, which, you know, the the ongoing discussion about childhood obesity and and ability to uh, access exercise and, you know, times where gyms are closed is criminalizing not having a bike helmet, the right methodology in order to encourage people to wear bike helmets for their own safety. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, just in the context of sort of human nature, I mean, why would people not wear a bike helmet? I think it's unlikely because they're a member of a really dangerous subculture of helmet scofflaws. Right. And I also think that when you think about why somebody might, you know, what what is the purpose of the bike law? Okay, I could see, well, you don't want to have parent irresponsible parents letting their children ride bikes on the street without helmets. But to me, we already have so many laws and regulations associated with parenting and negligence and um, abuse and neglect. But there are all kinds of different mechanisms to address that. And, you know, some of those mechanisms could be education. And, you know, if you're an immigrant and you're coming from a place where nobody wears helmets on motorcycles, you're not necessarily going to think to put your kid, put a bike helmet on your kid. But then you might find yourself facing some sort of criminal sanction for it. And rather than just get your kid a bike helmet, your kid may never ride the bike again. And so, um, when you kind of think about, okay, what's what's the end goal? Well, is criminalizing this going to, to make an impact? And two, aren't there already existing laws and regulations that address this and address this in a way that doesn't take up the time and energy of the police and judicial systems? Mm-hmm. And, you know, in a circumstance where we constantly hear law enforcement talking about how stretched thin they are, do we really want them having an emphasis of taking time out of their day to write people tickets for not wearing bike helmets? Or do we want that to be something that can be addressed through education and uh, opportunities for people to learn to make different choices or incentivization from private things like, you know, insurance companies that give you a lower rate. If you go, you know, a certain amount of time without, an accident. Well, there might also be incentivization in other ways for wearing bike helmets uh, that work better. That you know, it's a carrot that works better than the stick. Mm-hmm. So, I think bike helmets might be one of those things that, on its face, oh yeah, everybody should wear a bike helmet. That's a good idea. Well, okay, but is not wearing a helmet so bad that we should criminalize it? Mm-hmm. And exactly as you had indicated, some of the possible negative outcomes would be. That was the experience that the people who didn't have bike helmets either didn't were not aware of the law or maybe they didn't have uh, the money uh, to buy bike helmets to be fully outfitted. Um, They were not doing harm to any other people. There was some increased risk to themselves, but no harm to other people. And yet um, it caused there to be interactions between helmetless bike riders and police. And in the end, the statistics showed that that was disproportionately interactions between people of color and police with all of that negative connotation and highly um, emotional and frankly, frightening weight to it. You know, it is very frightening if you are someone who is 
you know, aware of the history of poor interactions between uh, people of color and police, you are legitimately afraid for your life if a police officer comes up to you to address a problem. We can imagine, especially teenage kids, having this happen just because they're not wearing a bike helmet. I don't think anyone sees that as desirable. And I'll give really a lot of credit to the city council and the city of Tacoma for having this information about the negative consequences of a law that seemed like a pretty good idea initially and deciding that this is not the situation we want. We're going to take that law off the books, not criminalize the wearing of bike helmets. Doesn't mean we won't encourage people to wear bike helmets, but we're not making it into a criminal infraction. Good job. And there's still way, again, still ways to address the underlying conduct, either through incentivization or through existing laws and regulations to reach the same outcome without making it a criminal act. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about one other sort of uh, area of criminal law before we get into talking about sort of the decision-making matrix. And that is last week, our state Supreme Court decided to um, overturn or find unconstitutional a law regarding uh, strict liability for possession of small amounts of controlled substances. So putting that into English, that would be you automatically get charged with a felony if you have a small amount of drugs in your possession, no matter why you have them. Tell us about that law, Shannon, and what it was before, what the court did, and what it means. So Washington was a bit of an outlier in continuing to have a drug possession uh, strict liability scheme for criminal charges. So most of the time when you think about crime and establishing that somebody has committed the elements of a crime, one of the things that has to be established is that the person had the intent to violate the law or as they uh teach us in law school or in constitutional law, mens rea, the guilty mind, the intention to break the law. Very few things in criminal law that results in potential for incarceration as opposed to citation are strict liability, meaning simply the act of having something makes you subject to criminal penalty, even if you didn't have the intention to violate the law. And so that's kind of one of the things that was of of concern to the Supreme Court in Washington. And when you pull it apart and really think about it, this is not suddenly making possession of drugs legal in Washington, but it's still a crime. What has to happen is you have to prove that the person intended, you know, actually knows that they have drugs and are intending to break the law by having possession of drugs. And when you think about it, it does make sense to piece apart, are you going to criminally sanction somebody in a way that might result in their incarceration for something that they don't even know that they have possession of? So grab the wrong purse, somebody leaves something in your bag. Somebody put something in your pocket. And I know that there's this natural sense of, well, pick better friends. Well, that's not really the best way to deal with a circumstance that could result in somebody being incarcerated and having their future ruined for a drug conviction. And so the element that's at issue that the Washington Supreme Court identified was in order for Washington to have constitutionally appropriate drug laws, that possession laws had to have an element of knowing intent and couldn't just be, you have it, you're going to be subject to criminal sanctions because there was too much possibility that innocent individuals were going to end up facing criminal sanction simply by way of possessing drugs, even when they had no intention to possess drugs or no intention to possess drugs in a manner that is illegal. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, you, you have to always understand that um, race issues come into play with this, too. So, for example, also last week, there was a story uh, in the news about a woman who went to a, I think it was a Goodwill, but it was a thrift store of some kind and bought a small uh, kit to do crochet. She wanted to learn how to make some different crochet items, bought this kit at a thrift shop 
and then discovered that there was, uh, I think, a kilo of cocaine hidden inside of it. So, yeah, I mean, nobody clearly (laughs) intended the thrift shop to have a cocaine crochet kit. And certainly the woman (laughs) did not intend to purchase a crochet cocaine kit. But at the moment that she purchased it, under the old law, she would have been strictly charged with a felony. You don't even know what's in there, but you have it and you're charged with it. Yeah, and I mean, that's a pretty aggressive stance uh, when you think about the circumstances, you know, and and how that impacts people based on socioeconomic concerns. You know, if you're buying a used car, if you're buying a used anything from a resale store, you are more likely to inadvertently and accidentally end up with something illegal. Everybody has that terrifying nightmare, at least used to, of what happens if I buy a used car and then it turns out I go to cross the border and it turns out that there were drugs in the car, the used car that I bought. And now suddenly I'm subject to criminal sanction for drug possession. Mm-hmm. Well, and it ha- and it, and it's going to have a differential impact. So if I go in and buy something that, you know, contains cocaine, I think I have a, you know, since I'm a 58 year old white woman, I think I have a reasonable chance of being believed that I had no idea what was included in there and that I'm completely innocent and, and, you know, should not face any consequences. Someone who is younger of a different race or, you know, has, is an immigrant, whatever it may be, that person is going to face a heightened level of skepticism because of our prejudices. So, you know, having these strict liability laws, it's sort of like, A, it just trips that that's no fair line. You know, it's no fair if you're catching someone doing something that they have no idea they're doing. And secondly, it really plays into the opportunity for differential outcomes for different people. And I I think about the, when I started my legal career, I worked for a federal district court judge in Eastern Washington and He also often sat by designation down in the Southern District of California. And I can't tell you how many times we had drug possession cases that involved unwitting sister, girlfriend, boyfriend, child, driving something across the border for somebody or taking something somewhere for somebody. And the unintended consequences always seemed to fall on young people who were not proficient in English or did not speak English and were easy to be easy to have others take advantage of. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you can, with every good intent, agree to do something for somebody else and not know that you're violating a crime. And certainly I think that this is a really important decision because it speaks to an intention by the Washington Supreme court to focus on intention. Yes, that was Mm -hmm. a deliberate kind of pun there, but that it's important to understand that crimes should come with an intention to violate the law if we're going to hold people accountable for them. And that strict liability has very few purposes in criminal law, because in criminal law, where you have to be found to have violated the, to have engaged in criminal conduct beyond a reasonable doubt, we should expect that you also have an intention to commit crime before we hold you to the standards associated with that, or at least we're engaged in some form of culpable criminal negligence or recklessness. Mm -hmm. And so we should be clear because when this decision came out, I saw a flurry of blurbs uh, on social media from police groups, uh, some prosecutor groups immediately saying, Drugs um, right. This is terrible. <laughs> it means you can possess drugs in Washington. You know, possession of drugs is no longer a crime. That is not true. That is not. And the case was uh, state versus Blake. And that is not what state versus Blake stands for. It does not mean that one can lawfully uh, possess drugs in the state of Washington. It just means that Washington's criminal sanctions for drug for drug possession or going that particularly like it's important to like step back and say this law the strict liability drug possession law 
made uh, possession of a controlled substance a felony punishable by up to five years in prison, plus a pretty significant fine. And so the the framework that the state Supreme Court posed is they started with the question of, does this strict liability drug possession statute with these substantial penalties for innocent passive conduct exceed the legislature's police power. And the court identified that it did. So it's, it's important to note, like, a big concern for the Washington Supreme Court is this is a really heavy hammer to apply to innocent passive conduct. And did the legislature go beyond what it can appropriately police when it created a felony that was punishable by up to five years of incarceration with a large fee simply by being in possession of controlled substances. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's important kind of a, a framework as we think about harm reduction and where people, where we want people to think about these things is, is also just, you know, what is the intention and is the intention playing out in a way that just makes no sense? Like, I, I think what that to the extent in which people support criminalization of drug use or drug possession, I think that, that, it's appropriate to expect that people actually want to be intentionally violating the law as opposed to being purely innocent before they find themselves subject to potentially five years of incarceration. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I think this is the type of a decision. I don't know what the legislature was thinking when it agreed to this strict liability law. As Shana mentioned, Washington state was an outlier you know, the vast majority of states, it might even be like 49 other states, you have to have some intent. You have to know you have the drugs and intend to have the drugs in order to be criminally liable for having the drugs. Washington State, you didn't have to have that. And this was a lot like that analogy that you talked about in this case. Shannon Blake testified and others testified in in support of her that um, she was wearing jeans that a friend had given to her after purchasing them at a secondhand store. So friend mm-hmm. buys the jeans, gives them to Shannon. Shannon's wearing them. Shannon ends up being subject to a search involving uh, stolen vehicles. And when she is processed at arrest, the correction officers find a small bag of methamphetamine in the coin pocket of her jeans which you know is that little pocket within your pocket and she credibly to the supreme court's opinion identified that she didn't use drugs her boyfriend testified that she didn't use drugs and this is a circumstance where somebody bought pants secondhand gave them to her she wore them and she ended up finding herself subject to a pretty hefty felony and mm-hmm. it, you know we're still having a felony can still disqualify you from a lot of different things. And I think it's okay to get rid of a law that allows for people to be subject to all of the negative consequences associated with a felony if they don't actually intend to break the law. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's sort of our our harm reduction uh, decision-making framework is, you know, what is the harm here that is intended to be prevented? I mean, you, you want to prevent people from, Uh, possessing drugs, having drugs, using drugs. But if the person doesn't know that they have it or possess it or anything, how is this law preventing anything at all? It's not. So, I mean, it's a failure under part one. What is the harm to be prevented? If it's possessing drugs, you've got to know about it. A strict liability doesn't prevent anything. It just punishes people for conduct that may be completely innocent. So it's, it's a fail. It's too bad that it wasn't something that the legislature could have taken a look at and gotten rid of, but this is why we have a judicial um, power. You know, you have the people who make the laws, the people who administer the laws, and the people who review the laws, and the review function at the judiciary worked as it should have with the court saying, this is not right, and we are not going to allow this to continue. So now in the state of Washington, it's still not okay to possess controlled substance drugs. Um, But at least you have to know that's what you're doing in order for you to be um, 
charged and convicted. So let's talk about the next and so far my favorite new law. So as we discussed last time, Tacoma had an incident in January where I would say young people were gathered on Pacific Avenue doing, uh, you know, revving their cars, showing off their cars, driving donuts, burning donuts, um, engaging in street racing related activity. And a Tacoma police officer was amongst the people there who were watching in his SUV and ran over several people when he decided to drive directly through the crowd. Uh, somehow this turned into a discussion at our city council about the many dangers uh, and worries about street racing in Tacoma, not about- I'm gonna go back to car shenanigans. I think that was the term car, we last yes. week. Car, car shenanigans. So the many, many worries about car shenanigans in Tacoma as opposed to the concerns about inappropriate and dangerous police conduct in Tacoma. Um, there was a city council study session yesterday, that would be March 2nd, and one of the things on the agenda was an update on their street racing. Um, and one of the things that they looked at was um, what other cities were doing. And the city of Fife uh, has a new law or a law about unlawful exhibitions of speed. And Tacoma Police believes that this also covers um, the bystanders who may be standing around watching such exhibitions of speed or car shenanigans. And so the Tacoma Police Department has recommended that the city pass a law or an ordinance that makes regarding unlawful exhibitions of speed that also would make being a bystander and observer of these exhibitions of speed a criminal offense. So let's go through our framework for decision-making. The first thing we need to figure out is, do we need it? Is this an area where we need a law on the unlawful exhibition of speed? What do you think, Shannon? Do we need this? And well, I guess- Don't we have laws against speeding? I mean, well, this is I'm a thing. terrible driver and I get pulled over relatively, for, I, I will completely acknowledge I am, potentially the worst driver I know. And I see my significant other probably would say I'm clearly the worst driver I know. And I get pulled over. I've gotten pulled over for speeding a lot in my life. And I think that as far as I know, Tacoma police have lots of power and ability to pull people over for speeding. And they also have the ability to address reckless driving. And they also have the ability to address a lot of different things. Why the heck would you need a law that is so specific to this particular circumstance? I don't understand. Mm -hmm. That's a circumstance where you might legislate yourself into a box you can't get out of. And it turns out there's actually no law that you can apply to the situation because you've come up with so many different narrow laws that you miss the actual thing that's of concern. So to me, well, I don't get why you need a special law to address displays of speed when one has speeding laws readily available to you to enforce. Yeah, I think there are dangerous driving laws. There are speeding laws. Uh, there are probably uh, additional laws about operating, you know, motor vehicles under, you know, dangerous circumstances. Um, but let's let's just sort of assume that, OK, maybe there's something here. That could that does add to the array of anti-speeding and dangerous driving laws. What is the harm that they are seeking to prevent? Is it the harm of um, car shenanigans, you know, burning donuts and things like that? Is it the harm of people gathering on the sidewalk? I have no idea. Is it the harm that a police officer may show up? and do something that is of poor judgment later, well, that seems to be an entirely different problem. So again, mm -hmm. I come back to what, what is the harm that can't be addressed by existing law? If you're concerned about safety, well, there's lots of traffic laws that can be used to enforce safety. 
if you're worried about noise, particularly if, you know, I, I, I don't want to sound like I, I don't think that p- people who live in neighborhoods who have concerns with this happening in residential neighborhoods are, you know, completely out to lunch. That's, that's not at all what I'm saying. But if you're in a residential neighborhood and this is happening, you're more likely to have a lower speed limit that can be enforced easier there anyway. They're more likely to be noise ordinances that can be used to prevent the activity from occurring anyway. And so my question is, why aren't we taking advantage of the existing laws that we have to address the harm where it's occurring, where it seems to potentially be a legitimate problem for neighborhoods, as opposed to diverting the conversation about police reaction to an epidemic of car shenanigans, which Mm -hmm. I don't really think exists. Mm -hmm. I mean, and again, not to say it might not, I I grant that if you live in a neighborhood that's dealing with car shenanigans, it could be very problematic. But my question is, okay, so why aren't, why are, why isn't law enforcement focused on emphasis actions to address that as opposed to pitching to the city council to pass a new law? Mm -hmm. And I think one of the questions I ask myself too is the, is the harm that the city is looking at, is it the potential that someone might get injured, a driver or a bystander, or are they concerned about the harm to property or things? Are they concerned about um, the skid marks that were in the intersection um, or the crowd gathering in an area that might be a problem for local businesses? Because to me, those are different things. I'm not sure that you need a um, criminal law if your concern is damage to asphalt or um, problems for the business proprietor. And I mean, again, I think that that the real concern is about this conduct happening in neighborhoods. And if there were, if it is happening in neighborhoods, and I trust the people who say that this is happening in their neighborhoods and it's problematic, use the laws we already have mm-hmm. and enforce those laws. And I've not heard a big outcry of business ownership from that portion of downtown where the incident in January occurred that reflected that some sort of harm or damage was caused to them. Um, frankly, I have no idea as to if those businesses might be really excited to have some people down there patronizing them, given how little business they've gotten during the pandemic. But I would, again, I defer to the business owners to speak to that, but it seems like we're focused on the wrong things for the wrong reason instead of questioning, okay, what should we do when a cop uses poor judgment and it harms people? Let's start with talking about that as opposed to criminalizing the underlying conduct that was not causing anyone any harm at the time it was occurring over addressing the conduct of the police officer at issue. Mm -hmm. The next question I would ask in the, in trying to determine, you know, why do we need this law? You know, what is the harm is, you know, is the, is there a real harm here Or is it just the potential for harm or the perception of a possible harm? Do we actually have any uh, history of um, individuals being injured during these car shenanigans? Or do we just think that it's possible that somebody might get injured? Because if the harm isn't real or immediate, if we haven't experienced any actual harm, then I would say at a minimum, you better study it some more to decide whether this is even a problem. Right, absolutely. And why are we going to prioritize this in a time period where, you know, there's a lot of different irons in the fire where there's a need to have discussion and action. Why would we prioritize this over other things? Mm-hmm. Uh, another question would be how likely is the harm to occur if nothing is done? You know, if, if we do nothing, are we going to see more of this or are we going to see the same amount of this or is it going to be somewhat dependent on, you know, when the stars align and you're in the middle of a pandemic and people, you know, young people may have nothing to do and car culture circles decide that downtown Tacoma is an attractive location, you know, then you may have this event happening, but it's not like this is a regular occurring event down on Pacific Avenue. So is it even going to happen again? Because again, if it's not likely to recur, then you don't really need a rule or a law. And why are we focusing on it to begin with as opposed to um, 
addressing real problems that we're dealing with every day. Mm -hmm. Who will benefit if the harm is prevented? So who, and let's assume we make this law and the law means that there are no more car shenanigans. So who benefits from that? I mean, I, I guess presumably everyone does a little bit. But my question is, the law is already being broken now, right? Presumably. If, if, if we're concerned about reckless behavior with vehicles and speeding with vehicles, we already have laws for that. So how does passing another law potentially protect anybody from the exact same conduct? Mm-hmm. Like, that, that's my first question is, does it do anything or will it create yet another law that's not being enforced? Or if it is being enforced, is being enforced in a inappropriate or discriminatory manner? Yeah. And that's that's my last piece of sort of like, you know, how to determine who, you know, what is the harm and um, is there a need for it? And that's who who would be impacted by the harm prevention activity. Let's assume we make this law. Then what happens? You know, who is going to be impacted by this? What kind of impact will it be? So I think we can assume your likely population of people who would be impacted by a um, display of speed, you know, unlawful display of speed law, car shenanigans law would be younger. Male. Probably be male. Uh, Um, I I won't make any assumptions about, you know, race because I mean, I think there's plenty of young white men who are engaged in this activity too, but they're going to be young. I, I look at the, you know, in my communities where I've seen it, and that's both, you know, Seattle, Tacoma, uh, Sunnyside, Washington, I tend to see younger men of color, particularly um, Latino and Asian men in that subcar culture that's like the... I'm probably, there's probably somebody cringing at me talking about this, like the tuner culture, right? Like the, the, the souped up Hondas and Civics Mm. and, and the the cars that Paul Walker would have been driving in the uh, Fast and Furious movies, as opposed to the American muscle cars that are traditionally, you know, associated in, in those movies with Vin Diesel's character, right? So right. to me, there there's kind of a subcar culture there that tends to skew towards young men of color. I also know from having watched the videos with respect to the incident in January, there was somebody who had a uh, who had a Mexican flag. Uh, so I think that there's it it has potential to have adverse impacts based on membership in a protected class based on race. But I think with any law that is called out for, that is created to address a specific purpose at a specific time that leads to the potential for discriminatory policing when it's getting applied, because what is a display of speed? What is the difference between a display of speed for car shenanigans and somebody being late for work at, you know, multi-care Mary Bridge who decides to take one of those corners very quickly to catch the light. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So in both instances, people may be speeding now one is going to be a different criminalized behavior than the other and is it going to depend on who you are in as to what laws is implemented right if you're like if you're a white female nurse you're probably going to get the lesser crime mm-hmm. or the or the <laughs> the generic speeding crime and then i also really you know the 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 really concerning thing for me is when does it become criminalization of association as opposed to criminalization of action? Mm-hmm. Well, hold that thought. Let's take a break and come back because, yeah, I think the bystander piece here is where there's just a whole big puddle of unconstitutional possibility. Hello, friends. This is Marguerite Martin, creator of MoveToTacoma.com and co-founder of Channel 253. 
It's bad out there, folks. Home prices in Pierce County are up 15% year over year. While it's no secret that the market is hot, you may not know that Tacoma has been the hottest housing market in the country for several years. There is an extreme shortage of homes for buyers to buy. Having a local Tacoma buyer's agent that specializes in the neighborhood and price range you're after can mean the difference between losing or winning the bid on your dream home. If you're looking to sell your current home and find something that meets your needs better, having a neighborhood expert handle your listing will impact how much money you net off of your sale. The right agent to market and sell a home on the West Slope might not be the same person who has the expertise and connections to find you an income generating duplex somewhere else. All agents have specialties, and I know the players for every niche. Best of all, it doesn't cost you anything. Great local agents are happy to pay me a finder's fee if you end up buying or selling. And you can rest easy knowing you're going to get a great agent who specializes in exactly what you're looking for. If you want to learn more, visit MoveToTacoma.com and use the contact form. Thanks for listening to Channel 253. Okay, we're back. Hey, before we get back into this fascinating question of whether making a law in Tacoma for uh, unlawful displays of speed might even be a good idea, we think it's probably not, um, let me talk to you a moment about becoming a Channel 253 member. It is a great opportunity, I would say. It is a very affordable opportunity, $4 a month, $40 a year. You get um, access to some member-only perks like the Off the Record podcast hosted by our producer, Doug Mackey. And you also get to participate in our Channel 253 members Slack channel, which is actually quite an interesting way of keeping up with what's going on in Tacoma. So I urge you, if you're not already a member, to please consider membership. We would very much appreciate that. Now, Shannon, let's get back. One of the things that's interesting about this unlawful display of speed idea that the Tacoma Police Department has recommended is that what they really want to do is be able to arrest bystanders. And so what they're doing is they're looking back on that police incident in January and saying the real problem is there were a whole lot of people crowded around and then they came around the police car and that was bad. And that's why they ended up in passive voice, they were run over. Um, they Bystanders were hurt in this situation because it was so dangerous. Well, in fact, bystanders were the, the, yeah. bystanders. Yeah. Like, active being was problematic. Yeah, they were standing. They were gathering. They were crowded around the police car. No question about that. We saw the videos. The police car ran them over. The police car caused their injuries and sent several people to the hospital. It wasn't, you know, self-inflicted bystander activity. But what the police now say is we would like to have a have this be a crime, too, so that if you are observing car shenanigans, car shenanigans you could be arrested. So I think there's some pitfalls there. What do you think, my constitutional scholar friend? Oh, I have so many concerns about the wisdom of something like this. Uh, let's start with how are you going to determine who's a bystander for car shenanigans and who is in the neighborhood for some other purpose? And also, how are you going to address, recognize what is criminal about being a bystander to or being part of a crowd, because really that's what it is, right? And when are we going to criminalize being part of a crowd? How many times, you know, what you, what's going to happen if you are um, at a sporting event at Stadium High School and the crowd spilling out onto the street after the game and people are, you know, I'm imagining in a magical world where we have games that people attend and events that people attend and there are people on the streets right around the stadium district. At what point are you, are you going to criminalize that? If it's people leaving the car, leaving the stadium garage who happen to be younger might be, you know, revving their engines as they leave the garage as teenagers are want to do. What happens if you're just the person leaving the game and you walk past that? Are you going to be subject to this law as a bystander? 
and also, do we want to go down the path of criminalizing association as opposed to action? And there's a lot of problems with doing that and many laws that seek to criminalize association as opposed to action get struck down as being unconstitutional. They end up, you know, really reflecting violations of the First Amendment or discrimination. And, you know, because remember, one of the one of the tenets of the federal First Amendment is our right to peaceably assemble, uh, to seek redress from the government. So when does when do you start when when you start criminalizing the action of being someplace for a non for just being in the being the someplace for a reason where you're yourself not engaged in in a criminal activity we're we're criminalizing association rather than conduct and that also becomes really hard to police. Like, what, again, what's the difference between the person walking down the street and the person who's actually there for that purpose? And do we think that any gathering of individuals is now something that is potential to cause harm? Because I would think that we would be worried about any congregation of people on the streets, because in any circumstance where people are on the streets, there could be harm caused if we want to walk all the way backwards with respect to what happened in that incident. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, when does it become something that only gets unleashed against people whose viewpoints law enforcement doesn't like? Well, I think that's really the the question is that, you know, first, I think that it's, you're hard pressed to articulate why this is a criminal activity. If someone is simply standing on the side of the road, looking at, some cars, regardless of what they may be doing. I mean, you're going to have the completely innocent bystander and you're going to have the person who specifically showed up because they were looking forward to seeing something that happens. But that's what you have everywhere, you know. And, uh, you know, what if people then also have some placards for um, some of our other local activities in Tacoma? What if they have some protest signs? What if it is a protest that has some car shenanigans going on. I mean, you can see that line starts getting blurrier and blurrier and blurrier. And I think if you ask yourself, what is the harm that you are intending to prevent? What is the problem you're trying to solve? The problem of people being gathered on a sidewalk in downtown Tacoma is not a problem at all. There was no harm done by those people to the extent that the police may have felt that there was the potential for harm if people were able to use some kind of weaponry that wasn't there against the police SUV. Well, maybe, but again, as you've noted, there are already laws on the books that are, you know, that say if you are engaged in an assault, it's a crime. If you are, you know, um, holding something that is a weapon and using it to inflict harm upon another or, you know, even on a police vehicle, if you are engaged in damaging activity, those are already crimes. So, you know, what is the harm here that is trying to be addressed by saying if you are a bystander at a um, event that has cars engaged in speed or other car shenanigans, what is the harm that is uh, we're trying to prevent? I mean, I, I really don't see it. I don't either. And I again, I see the potential for criminalization of association as opposed to conduct. Um, I'll, I'll give another example. You know, in the '90s, and then again, probably you know, four or five years ago, when there's a big effort to criminalize affiliation with gangs, and completely agree that there are lots of things that gangs do that are completely subject to all kinds of different laws. You know, drug trafficking, RICO, uh, uh, human trafficking, all of those things are appropriate methodologies to deal with the negative conduct of gangs. But when you start to criminalize the idea of gang membership, well, how do you determine who's in a gang? 
do you go so far as to say anybody you can't wear bandanas in this town because if you do you're affiliated with a gang and we prohibit membership in a gang well that's a first amendment issue and i i just worry that we're going too far down the road of criminalizing association as opposed to conduct when the real issue that caused all of this concern was a police officer running over citizens Mm -hmm. in our um, decision-making matrix after we get through figuring out what the whether there's a need for a law or a policy or a rule we then start looking at okay let's assume there is a need for this and in this case I, I think it's difficult to say what that need is we can really can't move past that one if you can't articulate a need then you're done right we have plenty of laws on the books. We do not need additional laws, especially ones that there's no need for, or as Shannon mentioned, are so very specific that they don't cover something else. I mean, the last thing you need is a law that talks about an unlawful display of speed and makes that conduct illegal. And then someone else can say, well, but my conduct, which is very similar, which is I was using bicycles to ride wheelies or skateboards in the middle of the street and attracted a crowd, that's not illegal. I mean, you don't want that. You don't want your laws to be so specific that they cover only one thing. But Right, absolutely. If we did have a need for a law, then we would need to look at how do you enforce it? What kind of consequences do you want to occur here? Because there are certain things that you really want criminal law enforcement to be responsive for. I mean, let's put it this way. I I think most of my commentary has been kind of negative toward the police, and I don't really mean that 100%. Look, if someone is being assaulted, murdered, um, something horrible is happening, there's no one else I want on site as quickly as I want a police officer on site. But they need to be used for that specific purpose. They are a precious resource in many ways. They're a highly expensive resource. They need to be used when you have a legitimate, immediate danger of physical harm. If you have an immediate danger of physical harm, you need to call the police and the police need to get there as soon as possible. So is the harm you're trying to prevent something where you have an immediate danger of physical harm? If yes, a criminal law is probably appropriate. If no, then what? What else might be more appropriate? If you're talking about harm to property or things, do you really need the police? Do you need the fire department? Do you need something else? Do you need code enforcement? You know, it. not everyone can get there in five minutes. So, I mean, you really do need to think about what am I trying to stop from happening here and who's in the best position to stop it? What if there's a danger of physical harm, but it's not immediate? You know, maybe it's sort of like, you know, a threat of something or something that could happen maybe. You know, would warnings be sufficient? Around Five Mile Drive in Point Defiance, we have warnings to people saying, stay off the cliffs. They're very fragile. You could fall into the water. You know, you don't need to post a police officer there to arrest people who go onto the cliffs. We assume that posting the danger is going to be sufficient to present, prevent the harm. What if Absolutely. it's a danger? Yeah, what if it's a danger to property, but not an immediate danger? Again, would warnings and notice be sufficient? Most of the time, that's what we do. Most of the time, we tell people, you know, don't park here or, um, you know, stay out of this zone or there's a danger or a fire warning or something like that. And it works really well. So you don't have to make everything into a criminal act, you don't have to have the police become the enforcers. Because when the police become the enforcers, it's a very expensive enforcement, and it's a very dangerous enforcement. Feelings can run high. It's an emergency. Weapons are involved. That's not appropriate for most of our engagements. Um, Some of the things to keep in mind when you do make more things crimes, the expense, as I've mentioned, But you'll also find that suddenly our crime statistics change. The more crimes you have, the more things you send the police out for, the higher the number of police reports, the higher the crime statistics, and the perception is that your city is more dangerous or less safe than other cities of similar size. And that may simply not be true. So there's a social cost to making crimes your 
primary way of, of, you know, engaging in oversight of human activity. Lawsuits. Lawsuits are a big one. The city of Tacoma is facing some very, very large lawsuits through police actions and other actions. And we will all be paying for that. I mean, you know, this, when the city or the county gets sued, and if there is liability, usually there, there's some potential for some insurance, but generally cities and counties are self-insured. And that means they pay for the, um, they pay for the harm directly. And the way you make up for that is you have to cut services or raise taxes. So it's expensive to have. And even when cities and counties are insured, a lot of times it's through a risk pool or a risk cooperative. So it just means the risk is being spread out over different cities and counties. And when it comes back to the discussion of harm, you know, what is the bigger harm? Creating laws that might give more opportunity for Tacoma to be subject to lawsuits for discriminatory policing and engaging in uh, wrongful criminal actions against individuals based on membership in protected class or violating somebody's First Amendment rights or dot, 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 addressing that a officer handled the situation poorly and that the officer created liability through his conduct, and how can we better train our police to respond in circumstances that minimize liability to the city as opposed to creating liability? Yeah, definitely. So the other two things that I had in my decision matrix that I'll mention, and I'll put all of this in the in the um, show notes so that people can find it if you want to, and that is that, you know, if... You do, if you as a government leader decide that you do want to enact a law or you know make a rule or a policy, build in an opportunity to review it. Nobody knows how things are going to turn out down the down the line. And you can easily build in either a sunsetting provision saying, you know, this law will be subject to review in three years, or you can uh, set up a citizen review board that has a charge of periodically reviewing these rules. Um, and that way, you can look for unintended consequences as Tacoma found with its bike helmet laws, and you can take action. You know, you're not reliant on some group bringing it to your attention. You have established a review and established an opportunity to do that good follow-up of, you know, your feedback loop of, I'm going to do this thing, and we're going to implement this thing, and then we're going to review it and measure it and see if it actually does what we want it to do. It's like a, hey, a proactive data-driven systemic decision-making. You know, we try, we try. Okay. And it's, and okay. so very rational and leads to, you know, the reactionary laws tend to never work out well. Yeah. And I mean, the truth is this, this kind of decision-making is really important and it needs to happen. And it very rarely does. And I'll tell you why again, it's because I think there's a strong push to do something about every issue that comes up. And the easiest thing to do is put another ordinance on the books and then let it go. You don't provide the manpower to enforce it. You don't provide the review mechanism to review it after a minimum period of time. And it just sits out there, cr possibly creating problems for you until something goes wrong or you get sued. So if you can't avoid putting these things on the books in the first place, at least you can build a review process in so that you have an opportunity to check on what you've done and whether it's actually achieving the goals that you wanted it to achieve. This whole shocking concept of, are you getting the outcome you wanted? Yeah. The last piece is more that is uh, is information and consultation with the public, and that is very important as well. So, to those people who are in government, who are in leadership positions in particular, decide at the beginning who is going to be the person who keeps the public informed of what is the issue under consideration. When are there going to be meetings to discuss this? Where are you going to gather all of the pro and con information? Is it going to be accessible to the public? When are you going to have, you know, a preliminary decision made? When are you going to have public input on that? When are you going to do your final decision making? Assign someone. It can be 
a staff person. It can be one of the leaders. Use social media. Use your website. But tell the public what you're looking at. Tell the public we have a proposal from the Tacoma Police Department to have an unlawful display of speed law that would also make it an offense for someone to stand on the sidewalk and watch a car. Tell the public this is what we're looking at and here's what we're doing and ask the public for their input. You know, I'll tell you this. A lot of people are going to say, good for you, make more laws because people think that's where safety lies. But hopefully you'll get some people saying, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What are you trying to solve here? You already have speeding laws. You already have dangerous driving laws. You already have reckless endangerment laws. Why aren't you giving tickets for those? Who is this going to target? Who is going to be harmed by this law? You know, which young people are going to have criminal records for life, not be able to get into college, not be able to get into housing, not be able to get a loan, not be able to get a job because of their criminal records. You know, let people talk these things through. Make that part of your decision-making process. Be thoughtful along the way and make sure that your intentions match your actions, just like we would expect that people's intentions and actions are what cause them to face consequences. Yeah. If the leaders follow this process, and I'm not saying this is the only process, I think this is a good one, but follow a process, follow an objective, non-emotional, non-screaming, you know, excited process of identifying what's a harm, what can we do to prevent it, what are the consequences that we expect to come from this, Who's going to be enforcing it? What does that entail? How are we going to review whether it works or not? And how are we going to engage the public as we go through this process? If you do that, your decisions will be better and you will avoid doing some of the gut reaction nonsense, such as developing laws specific to car shenanigans when there is no need and frankly, a great potential for liability on the city if you do this. 100% agree. And also, I think it really speaks to the question of, you know, what, are, what is the highest and best use of, of time? Is it yeah. the highest and best use of time to be criminalizing, watching people engage in conduct that if it's illegal is our already illegal under a different statute or is the best highest and best use of time addressing more fundamental problems that the city is facing absolutely and what is the best use of your precious resources you know you have very limited resources in terms of police and other emergency personnel you need them to be available for the true emergencies emergency conduct and extreme risk of physical harm. So don't waste them on things where they're not needed. Amen. All right. Any final thoughts, Shannon? Well, I'm just going to say, I hope that we're in a circumstance where this does not serve as a yet another distraction from the conversations that really need to be had and that are of significant importance to the citizens of Tacoma. So I'm going to hope that this is a passing phase and distraction and that we quickly get back to the real conversations and the real issues because the city council has a lot of big things that they have on their plate that they need to be focused on. Yeah. And I agree. And we talked off the record that, you know, today is the one year anniversary of the death of Manny Ellis, who was uh, killed at the hands of the Tacoma police officers um, and we're still waiting for the final investigation on that. Well, the, the final decision on charging and the final statement from the attorney general's office on that case. And, you know, those, those are the types of very serious issues that we have in our community that we need to be putting our time and attention into. Um, car shenanigans, no. The way that the police respond to gathered bystanders and car shenanigans, yes. But that's not what is going on right now. Absolutely agree. All right, then. So that is it for this uh, episode of Crossing Division. I will put all this on the show notes. So you can get it. If you have questions or comments, you can get a hold of me by email, uh, truetacoma at gmail.com or find me on Twitter 
at true underscore Tacoma. And Shannon, if people want to get a hold of you, I didn't really even give you a chance to introduce yourself this time. That's okay. I, 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 I'm supposed to ask if I get a, a jacket. Nate made a joke the other day about uh, three-time participants in Nerd Farmer getting a smoking jacket. So I'm now at 3.5 on Crossing Division. Uh, but I am pretty active on Twitter under my name, S. McMinnemy. And uh, you can find me there. And you can also find me on the 253 Slack channel where you get all the best conversations. Definitely. All right. We will see you again next time. Did you know Channel 253 is member supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. Crossing Division is part of the Channel 253 podcast network. Check out our other shows, Nerd Farmer, Interchangeable White Ladies, We Art Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Citizen Tacoma, What Say You, and Gimme the Mic. This is Channel 253.